0: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, everyone. Back in November, we went on tour with Three Stops in Texas, and we had an episode that covered a brief history of barbecue for that tour. So, the version of that that we're sharing with you today was recorded in the first stop on the tour which was Austin that was just the one that had the cleanest audio quality after we had listened to it so enjoy hello and welcome to the podcast i'm tracy v wilson and i'm holly fry <laughs> usually when we're on tour we are going to several different cities in different states in normally distinctly different parts of the country. Like, they might be all on the same coast. But, you know, Massachusetts is not the same as Georgia, for example. What? Uh, yeah, it's weird. I mean, I've lived in both of those places, so I feel like I can vouch. Um, so there's not often a topic that seems like it could unite all the places that we're going on a tour. But this tour is three different cities in Texas. So we thought maybe we would try to find something a little more Texasy. After some discussion, we landed on the possibly life-threatening decision of barbecue. <laughs> uh, I may have told my Lyft driver that's what we were talking about, and he was like... Ooh. <laughs> I was like, Ken, if I need you, if I, can I get your number so you can call me for a quick getaway if stuff goes south? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, normally we just pick something that sounds like it's going to be fun, and then sometimes in the process we realize it's kind of complicated, and also with barbecue fun maybe also kind of complicated. Uh, we totally recognize that there are people who don't like barbecue or don't eat meat at all, and there are plenty of like ethical and uh, environmental reasons to reduce the amount of meat that we eat. We understand all of this. Um... But the story of barbecue is really intimately tied to language and history and culture, especially in the South, especially in Texas, maybe extra, especially in Austin. (laughs) Uh, I think the first thing that my Lyft driver said to me when I got in the car was, eat some barbecue while you're here. Um, Obviously, there are all kinds of barbecue styles found all over the world, but the focus and what we're talking about today is really on the United States, specifically the lower 48. So, even without getting into things like Korean bulgogi or Bra- Brazilian churrasco or South African brahi, talking about barbecue is like walking into a linguistic and pedantic minefield. Um, and that is not, as some people might think, just because there are people who we're just gonna as politely as possibly call ignorant jerk faces um, that like to. Uh, claim that everyone else is ruining the language with their non-understanding of what true barbecue is. Uh, we so know he- <laughs> you all have your stakes in the ground. It's fine. For sure, for sure. Um, here is a quick list of some of the things that people argue about when it comes to the word barbecue, um, whether it's a noun or a verb, <laughs> whether it means a style of cooking or a food that has been cooked using that style, whether barbecue and grill are synonyms. Whether it involves cooking, yeah, a uh, C, we're going to get there. Very <laughs> good. Um, whether it involves cooking over direct or indirect heat. What kind of fuel is used for the flame, and if that fuel is wood, what kind of wood. Uh, also the ingredients and what's in the sauce. And whether the word barbecue has a C or a Q in it. <laughs> We could go on. There's so much space for pedantry. But really, the word barbecue has been both a noun and a verb for almost 400 years. Uh, And it's had multiple definitions going all the way back to its first use in the English language. And some of those definitions really don't actually have much to do with food or cooking at all. Yeah, so the most widely accepted explanation for where the word barbecue comes from is that it started with the Spanish word barbacoa, which today English speakers might more associate with kind of a slow-cooked, spicy, shredded meat. In this case, though, we're talking about a term that Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo uh, y Valdes said that he learned from the indigenous Taino people of the Caribbean. He traveled back and forth between Spain and the Americas a bunch of times in the 16th century. He wrote books on multiple subjects, including Spain's colonial conquest. And in his 1526 general and natural history of the Indies, he used this word, barbacoa, to describe a raised frame of sticks used to store grain. Uh, He was the first person to use this term in writing. It's not quite as mouthwatering as <laughs> the way we think of it today. Uh, soon, other Spanish writers were using this same word to describe similar things that they saw in other parts of the Americas. Here is an example from an account of Hernando de Soto's expeditions, which was written in 1540, and describing what is now southwestern Georgia. Quote, Maze is kept in a barbacoa, which is a house with wooden sides like a room, raised aloft on four posts, and has a floor of cane. So explain that at the food truck. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, this word did make its way into English, and early chroniclers in both English and Spanish and other languages as well all used barbacoa for other reasons besides just storing grain, including sitting on it and sleeping on it. (laughs) And, yeah, that last one is actually what the word barbecue meant in its first written use in English. In his 1697 voyage around the world, the English pirate and explorer William Dampier wrote, quote, The 12th in the morning, we crossed a deep river, passing over it on a tree, and marched seven mile in a low, swampy ground, and came upon the side of a great, deep river, but could not get over We built huts upon its banks and lay there all night upon our barbecues. (laughs) Or frames of sticks raised about three foot from the ground. I have to say, as somebody who might be like, I'm guessing 9% reptile DNA, this doesn't sound bad to me. Um, I would probably sleep on a barbecue because I am cold-blooded. Other writers in the 16th century also describe people in the Caribbean and Southern North America using the same or similar barbacoa frames to cook food, typically fish or some kind of what is apparently my people, lizards, um, like (laughs) iguanas or crocodile. And eventually that sense of use carried over into the English word barbecue as well, both as a noun to describe the frame itself and as a verb to describe cooking on that frame. But the first written word, barbecue, as a verb in English, still isn't exactly about food. It's from a play by past podcast subject Afra Ben. And that play is called The Widow Ranter or The History of Bacon in Virginia. Not that kind of bacon. It's not that kind of bacon. Uh, The play is about a different previous podcast subject, which was Bacon's Rebellion. So we have, like, multiple previous podcasts in that one sentence. All roads lead to barbecue, apparently. Um, In Act 2, Scene 4 of that play, Colonel Wellman, Deputy Governor, is trying to take Nathaniel Bacon into custody as a rebel. But Bacon is defended by a rabble, uh, which beats back Wellman's guards before Bacon steals one of the rabble's swords and turns them back. The rabble does not give up and shouts, let's barbecue this fat rogue, uh, meaning the deputy governor. And Bacon tells them to be gone, but Wellman says, quote, I'd rather perish by my meanest hand than owe my safety poorly to this Bacon. Uh, That should be this to Bacon, but it's funnier the way I said it accidentally. Uh, And Bacon is like aces, and he rolls out with the rabble. I like how the idea of being saved by Nathaniel Bacon is so objectionable to Wellman that he's just like, just let me die, though. Yeah, it's okay. Just kill me. So this play was written in 1689. That means by that point, the word barbecue was commonly known enough in England to show up in a play and have the audience know what they were talking about. But at the same time, this still is not really about food. It's more like they're calling for Wellman to be tarred and feathered. And also for anybody who is hung up on whether to spell barbecue with a C or a Q, uh, Afra Ben, in that instance, spelled it with a C. And other spellings in its earliest English uses include barbecue, that's with an O, uh, or barbecue with no E. So uh, C-U and that's it. So you will find this evolution from barbacoa, meaning a frame to sleep on or store things on or cook food on, to barbecue, meaning that thing I just said, or cooking the food on the frame or eventually the food itself. You find that progression all over the place. That's pretty much how it's described most of the time. But there are some naysayers about whether that's correct, and some of them are more logical than others. In 1829, the National Intelligencer printed an article that called Andrew Jackson's supporters barbecues (laughs) because they were, quote, going the whole hog from the beard, barb, (laughs) to the queue tail, Uh, Some people got kind of glommed on to that as meaning that there was a French origin for the word barbecue, and you'll still see that in some places. Most of the time when you do see it, there's also a note that that's probably not correct. The Oxford English Dictionary calls it an absurd conjecture. (laughs) The French would never put meat on a spit for one thing. (laughs) Um, Culinary historian Michael Twitty has also noted that in the Hausa language, which is spoken in northern Nigeria, babaka, which is spelled B-A-B-B-A-K-E, is used to describe a number of things having to do with grilling or toasting or cooking over a fire. And then there's Professor Andrew Warnes of the University of Leeds, and he wrote a book called Savage Barbecue, Race, Culture, and the Invention of America's First Food, and he takes, uh, he traces that connotation from barbacoa to barbecue, like other pe- a lot of other people have done, but he makes a slightly different argument, and it's a little more involved than we can get into tonight, because he wrote an entire book chapter on this argument, Uh, But basically he points out that we shouldn't just discount the idea that the word barbecue also has some connection to the word barbaric because that kind of reflects back to how the European colonists were viewing the people of the Caribbean and North America who had been cooking over the fire when they first got there. So regardless of the exact etymology, English people on both sides of the Atlantic definitely described barbecuing as an indigenous method of food preparation well into the 18th century for example on august 18th of 1758 during the french and indian war george washington wrote a letter to colonel henry bouquet in which he talked about the provisioning of his troops and he said we have not an ounce of salt provision of any kind here and it is impossible to preserve the fresh especially as we have no salt by any other means than barbecuing it in the indian manner In doing this, nearly half is lost, so that a party receiving 10 days' provisions will be obliged to live upon little better than five days' allowance of meat, a thing impracticable. I have some questions about this. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Losing that much of the meat makes it sound like either whoever was doing Washington's barbecuing was really bad at it, or maybe he was describing something that was more like drying the meat into a jerky than like... Barbecuing it. I like how it doesn't occur to you that someone like me is working the grill and eating as they go. You're doing a one for me. I and would just be like, yeah. One for them and one for me. Look, like I got the sucky grill detail. I'm going <laughs> to eat this stuff while it's fresh. Yeah, that would be like my cut for doing the work. Is this not how you guys barbecue? <laughs> Barbecue is also in Samuel Johnson's 1755 Dictionary of the English Language, with to barbecue as a verb, meaning a term used in the West Indies for dressing a hog hole, which, being split to the backbone, is laid flat upon a large gridiron, raised about two foot upon a charcoal fire, with which it is surrounded." And then Johnson lists barbecue as a noun with a definition of, quote, a hog dressed whole in the West Indian manner. So after all this, uh, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I think folks can just relax about what barbecue means (laughs) and whether other people are using it wrong. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary lists five different definitions for the noun and two for the verb, Merriam Webster lists three different meanings for each. And one of those Oxford English Dictionary definitions is about drying coffee beans, which we haven't talked about at all. So uh, we're going to get to even the much decried use of the word barbecue as a synonym for grilling. Like, we're going to get to that part that's been around. I, somebody is hissing. Uh, I'm just going to pretend we sold a lot of tickets to snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're excited (laughs) yay uh it's an audience of slytherins um anyway we're gonna get to how barbecue has been a synonym for grilling for almost a hundred years but before we do that we're gonna talk about another definition that we haven't even gotten into here and might cause more snake activity (laughs) barbecue as a social event uh and we're gonna get into that but first we are gonna take a little break And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
1: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a guggenjaner. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig for details.
0: Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? historians call barbecue the first truly American food because it combines this indigenous cooking frame of the barbacoa and then locally available spices with domesticated food animals that Europeans introduced to North America, especially pigs and cows and sheep and goats, Uh, African cooking techniques were also really critical to it because as the institution of slavery became more established and more widespread in the Americas, it was increasingly likely that the person who was doing this cooking was an enslaved African. And over time, colonial barbecue went from using a raised frame of sticks to a pit or a trench that was dug in the ground. And logs were burned alongside the pit until they were down to coals and then those coals went into the bottom. And at first the food was laid out on a framework of sticks but eventually people started to use gridirons irons or metal spits. And the first barbecue sauces were actually pretty minimal. This might make you sad. They tended to be also pretty much the same, regardless of where exactly the barbecue was being prepared. So it was usually some kind of very basic fat, like a butter or a lard, and then a little bit of vinegar and black or hot pepper, just basically used as a baste during cooking, and that was it. That sounds all right to me if it's really spicy. I'm, no. You're not all right. Okay. (laughs) I'm a wuss. Je suis wussoise, and I can't... (laughs) I can't handle the spicy. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, So apart from that, there was not a lot of consistency about what was being cooked because people were pretty much cooking whatever they had available. There might be several different types of meat at any given barbecue. Uh, Regardless of that detail, though, it was always a lot of food. So from the beginning, barbecues were usually community events. And the first written instance of barbecue with the meaning of a big gathering where barbecue is being served dates back to August 31st, 1733 in the diary of Benjamin Lind. And Lind has an E on the end. We don't know if it was Lindy or Lind, but we're going with Lind for the evening. Uh, And he noted, quote, fair and hot, brown, barbecue, hack, overset. Uh, That is word salad. (laughs) But just based on his very basic notations, it's pretty fair to conclude that he went to a barbecue hosted by someone named Brown. Uh, George Washington also noted that he had attended multiple barbecues. Those came up in his diary several times as well, the first of those being 1769. When it comes to where these first barbecues were being held, they started in Virginia, mostly because Virginia was the first permanent English colony in North America Ah, uh, barbecue as a food and as a cooking technique, and as a gathering, spread from there through British colonial territory. It may have also been president. President? Sure. No. <laughs> barbecue. Barbecue is president. For That's how I feel about it. I would be uh, actually really okay with that at this point. I'm great. no longer a vegetarian. In Lin, case that was not clear. Uh, So barbecue as a food and a cooking technique and a gathering spread from Virginia throughout British territory. It might have also been present. I was going to say it again. (laughs) This happens in the studio, too. And our producer makes it sound like I didn't do that. It might have been present in Florida uh, before Great Britain acquired that from Spain in 1763, as well as possibly other places that were also controlled by Spain. Uh, Maybe Texas. Who knows? Who knows? I like to think that barbecue was a benevolent and kind president. I hope so. (laughs) Passing delicious legislation. No one was hungry. Um, There's literally the best cartoon running in my head, and I wish I could project it to you, but it's in the style of I'm just a Bill. Just know that. So although barbecue did make its way into New England, it fell out of favor there by the end of the Revolutionary War. And the reasons seem to have been largely practical. Barbecuing is time and labor intensive, and it required people to stand outside tending a pit for up to 24 hours... New England has a shorter season where this is even feasible, as well as a smaller supply of labor at this time, and just not as much livestock as other parts of the colonies. And I would say no one wants to stand out in the cold for 24 hours. No, and you know, maybe the ground's going to be frozen. Maybe there are 110 inches of snow on the ground. Um, Over time because of all this, barbecue became a lot more associated with the South. And in the South, it started to serve a lot of social purposes. Sometimes it was just a basic social activity that was supposed to be fun, at least in theory. Uh, John Kirkpatrick was one of George Washington's secretaries. George Washington is in this show a lot. Um, On July 21st of 1758, Kirkpatrick wrote Washington a note that ended, quote, to tell you our domestic occurrences would look silly and ill suit your time to peruse, but we have dull barbecues and yet duller dances. <laughs> An election causes a hubbub for a week or so, and then we are dead a while. Uh, after that, he talks about who won the most recent elections, and then he wraps up with some thoughts about how much tobacco cost, which he included even though he admitted that that was probably not pertinent. <laughs> And when he talks about how dull these events are, there's that part of my brain that I'm like, dude, be the change. Like, shake it up. Um, You go dance, make it fun. Uh, Political barbecues got their start in Virginia in the late 18th century, and it was frowned upon for candidates at this point to actively campaign the way we would see today. But one sneaky way around this was that they could treat voters to a super delicious event. Um, And some went as far as to throw big entire barbecues, but they had to be really careful about it because if the whole thing was too lavish or too showy or too obviously tied to a candidate, people did not like it. Uh, It was not unheard of for local election committees to actually void people's candidacies entirely if they felt like their barbecue had gone a little too far. Can you imagine? This is too delicious. You may no longer run for public office. (laughs) And then barbecue steps up onto the... No. Yeah. Gonna sign some orders about deliciousness of sauce. So the criticism of political barbecues did not just come from the election committees. This is our favorite part of this episode. Starting in 1827, somebody writing under the pen name Barbecuensis. (laughs) See? That's why I was laughing. Barbecuensis published a series of letters against campaign barbecue in the Southern Advocate. And then two years later, more than a thousand people in Madison County, Alabama, signed a petition against this practice. I feel like the name barbecue is another great pet name. Or it should be a Star Wars character. And yes. I don't care which, but I'm, I'm in. It can be both. This whole uh, campaign against barbecues did not stop political barbecues, though. They were a huge part of elections in both the 1830s and the 1840s. And they were also held just as celebrations. Uh, Francisco de Miranda fought with Spanish forces against the British during the Revolutionary War. And on June 17th of 1783, he wrote about a barbecue that had been held in New Bern, North Carolina, to celebrate the end of active fighting. Here's what he said, quote, By way of celebration for this event, starting at one o'clock, there was a barbecue, a roast pig, and a barrel of rum from which the leading officials and citizens of the region promiscuously ate and drank. (laughs) With the meanest and lowest kind of people holding hands and drinking from the same cup. It seems impossible to imagine without seeing it a more purely democratic gathering. And it conforms to yeah, and it conforms to what the Greek poets and historians tell us of similar concourses among those free peoples of Greece. There were some drunks, some friendly fisticuffs, and one man was injured. <laughs> With that and the burning of some empty barrels as the uh, no, it's, I put, gave myself the French part and then I didn't practice ahead of time. With that and the burning of some empty barrels as a footage wide nightfall, the party ended and everyone retired to sleep. Sounds like a great night. It does. <laughs> God, let's have it now. Um, it was not long after the Revolutionary War formally ended, that barbecues really became an established part of Independence Day celebrations, with the whole event pretty standard no matter where in the country you were. It was a day full of songs and patriotic speeches, readings of the Declaration of Independence, lots of toasts, and of course, the barbecue. Alcohol had been served at barbecues pretty much since the start of them. But by the early to mid-19th century, it had become a bigger part of the festivities. And that meant that the temperance movement and religious denominations that discouraged alcohol became increasingly critical of barbecues. In 1815, several members of Old Salt River Primitive Baptist Church got in trouble for going to an Independence Day barbecue, and the question was put to the whole congregation of whether it was right or wrong to attend a barbecue, and the congregation answered that it was wrong. Again, I bet they didn't know how to party either. Um, There is also a widely circulated tale about a traveling Methodist minister named Paul Denton, who is on my personal enemies list, who in 1836—oh, you'll see why— in 1836 posted announcements about a splendid barbecue. The preparations are being made to suit all tastes. There will be a good barbecue, better liquors, and the best gospel. And a man named Peter Brinson had been paid to arrange the food. And people kept going to Brinson with questions about the liquor because it did seem kind of strange for a minister to have an event where he was going to serve liquor. And, like, brag about it. Uh, Brinson kept telling people he was not the boss of that and that Denton was the person seeing to the alcohol. So this barbecue was set up around a spring, and it was overrun with people. Of course, when you say food and hooch, people are coming. Um, The crowd was anxious to eat, and Brinson kept telling them that they had to wait for the preacher. And finally, a colonel in the crowd demanded that they get on with it. And at that point, Denton showed up, and he basically scolded them all for not waiting for the blessing. And then when the crowd demanded to know where the liquor was, he said, there, and he pointed to the spring, and then he turned the whole thing into a temperance sermon. He, right? He's on my enemy list yeah. forever. This is my new use of the time travel machine. Just to go back and slap him in the face while I hold a martini. That's, <laughs> that seems fine. Uh, this story was printed in a lot of places, but none of them say what the crowd did at that point. Uh, There were, however, a lot of temperance activists who started holding barbecues to try to rally support for their cause, but without tricking people with the promise of alcohol first. This makes me think of that South Park punch and pie situation. I don't know it. Oh. Cartman promises people punch and pie to come over and plan this whole event, but he doesn't have punch and pie. Oh, okay. So, uh, Denton is Cartman in this story, if you were wondering... (laughs) Sorry we went down that avenue. Um, It was about this time that it did become a little bit more common for women to be included in the white community's barbecues. Uh, Today it is a popular stereotype that the backyard grill is a man's domain. Whatever. That is not a new idea. Uh, But that idea goes all the way back to the first barbecue pits. The first barbecues tended to be fairly rough affairs, with women neither helping to prepare the food nor helping to eat it. That is so sad. It wasn't until the 19th century that barbecues were actually considered appropriate for ladies. And even then, it was only some of the time, often with separate seating for them away from the men. This is the (laughs) stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, I can eat a piece of meat next to a dude. There's no problem there. <laughs> I don't... It doesn't make a lot of sense. It really doesn't. It's because there was too much fighting and swearing and drinking, I guess. Ladies can do all those things. I know. We know this now. Uh, they knew it things. then, too. They were just... They had They had views. Uh, <laughs> wrong, wrong views. Yep. By the middle of the 19th century, barbecues, as an event, had become really an almost exclusively Southern, southern thing. In 1851, the Boston Post printed a piece that started, most of your readers have heard of a barbecue, but probably few have ever attended one. Yeah, I'm just, it's it's only a little bit condescending. Uh, it went on to describe a barbecue that the writer had been to that was held in Athens, Georgia, for retiring Speaker of the House Howell Cobb, and the writer, who signed this piece with the initials ELF, thought this whole thing was incredibly gross. Uh... Honestly, I have to agree with him because he described the people who were preparing this food, three of whom were black and three of whom were, were white, as just incredibly dirty. And he went on to say, quote, As there were neither towels nor water near them, the cooks made their mouths answer the double per- purpose of towels and water. Right? <laughs> This is worse than when somebody puts the meat on the grill and then takes it off the grill with the same spatula. Don't do that. Tracy has very strong feelings about food safety. I wrote about food safety for the first two years of my career as a writer. Yeah, I'm a little more sloppy jalopy about it. I mean, I don't do that, but like I'm not quite as like, eh, flip it. I'll, I'll wash it. It'll be fine. I had like that grandmother that literally said, if you don't eat a peck of dirt by the time you're one year old, you will die of disease. Because you will not have built up your immunity. It's a very I carry it with me to this day. Yeah. My brother got salmonella from a turtle when he was eight, and I'm still traumatized. (laughs) That's the best thing I've ever heard. I didn't know it was gonna disrupt the show. salmonella turtle is like a hero to me. This is the best. He's a comedy hero. He's with Yertle making fun cartoons. Uh, This person, ELF, that was writing about this horrific and gross and uncleanly barbecue finished his piece by saying, quote, as I had seen the cutting up process, of course I did not eat any of the dinner, but I could not help thinking that it was rather a brutal way of serving a retiring speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Uh, Even though barbecue was not particularly associated with the more northern part of the country at this point, Stephen Douglas did try to have a campaign barbecue in New York City in 1860. This was the first political barbecue known to have been held in New York City, and it apparently went very badly, with the meat itself being compared to the charred remains of a burned-down tenement. Uh, The meat, such as it was, was served with crackers and bread. There were, right? There were about 3,000 people in attendance at this horrifying barbecue. And apparently they were really eager for things to get started. There's an account from the day that states, quote, at the last patients of the... As the last patients of the mob began to expire and fearful that they might not be able to get any of the gratuitous supply of roast beef, they resorted to physical force and tore down the pine fences and burst into the enclosure. The police were too small a force to keep the crowd back and a most disgraceful scene ensued. This scene involved the crowd falling onto the tables and turning them over and scaring the carver away from his post, and then the whole thing devolved into this combination of a riot and a food fight with the crowd throwing things down into the barbecue pit and then, quote, the unruly host seized upon the only table that had been preserved and began demolishing the provisions thereon and really the table itself. Of course, Stephen Douglas lost the election of 1860. Uh, as did John C. Breckinridge and John Bell, Abraham Lincoln won, and the Civil War started not long after. And naturally, because it had become so closely associated with the South by this time, barbecue was far more associated with the Confederacy than with the Union during the war, with barbecues being used for things like wartime fundraisers, recruitment events, and troop musters. So throughout all this, like we said before, most of the people who had been preparing and cooking all this barbecue were enslaved Africans. And sometimes they were under the supervision of a white person, but uh, often it was a more experienced enslaved person who was in charge of the actual cooking. But enslaved people's experience with barbecue definitely did not end with fixing food for white people. Many slave owners used Christmas and Independence Day barbecues as a reward for their enslaved workforce. But of course, that workforce... Was preparing it for themselves. Barbecues served a similar purpose during times of intense labor, so like when it was time to pick the cotton or shuck the corn. And although some slave owners talked about these barbecues as evidence of their own generosity, as Frederick Douglass pointed out, this was really a way to keep enslaved people in line and maintain a facade of benevolence. There are also accounts of enslaved people arranging their own secret barbecues with pilfered livestock as an act of resistance. And barbecues were also associated with multiple slave uprisings. In 1800, enslaved people in Henrico County, Virginia, planned to take the capital of Richmond with a force of about 200 people. They were going to take Governor James Monroe hostage, and then they were going to negotiate for the emancipation of everyone in the state. They planned this uprising over a series of barbecues. This uprising, which was known as Gabriel's Rebellion, was unfortunately thwarted by heavy rain and by somebody informing authorities of the plot, and at least 26 people were hanged. The final plan for Nat Turner's Rebellion, which was the deadliest slave revolt in U.S. history, was also put together at a barbecue on August 21st of 1831. After Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st of 1863, newly freed people celebrated with a barbecue. And after the war, barbecue became a common part of Emancipation Day festivities, with the exact date of those festivities varying from one place to another. On June 19th of 1865, more than two months after the end of the Civil War and two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Major General Gordon Granger took his position as the appointed military governor of Texas. He issued General Order No. 3, which began, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. That event has come to be celebrated as Juneteenth, with barbecue still, yeah, yeah, Juneteenth, uh, with barbecue still a frequent part of that observation. And after the Civil War, barbecue continued to be a huge tradition all over the South, and it also moved westward as the nation expanded. In 1896, Maude Andrews published an essay in Harper's Weekly that read, quote, The barbecue is one of the institutions of the South. To have known it means happiness. Not to have known it means that a link in the chain of life has been lost. (laughs) By then, though... Uh, Barbecue is also taking on a more regional character, which is well established today. And we'll get to that after another quick break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
1: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? So for most of barbecue's history, it has been about cooking whatever meat was available slowly over low or indirect heat. There was not a lot of variety in the sauces or the sides. A lot of times it was just served with some bread, maybe some crackers like that time in New York. Uh, But in the 19th century, a new innovation really started to change that. And that innovation was the barbecue restaurant. The first barbecue restaurants were not like a full sit-down experience like you might think of. It was just as likely to just be a thrown-together stand that was by the side of the road. And it's really hard to say what the first one of those was or where it was built, but often the person who was doing the cooking at such places had kind of come to be known as the local barbecue guy or the barbecue man and was regarded as being especially good at what he did. One of the reasons it's hard to tell exactly who was the first... Uh, is that a lot of the first written references to these restaurants are about when they burned down in grease fires. <laughs> um, so who knows how long it was there before it caught on fire. Um, over time, though, these temporary kind of shacks evolved into more permanent establishments, a lot of times with the, pe- the pit or the trench that had been used evolving into this uh, permanent structure that was made out of brick. Um I 100% lost my place on my paper. Uh, It was after these permanent restaurants really started to establish themselves that different parts of the United States started to develop their own regional barbecue styles. And although the United States had an ice trade, thanks primarily to Frederick Tudor, who is someone we have talked about on our show before... There just wasn't a lot of refrigeration in the late 19th century. So these first restaurants really had to develop relationships with local farmers and ranchers who could provide them meat when they needed it, which they could then cook very promptly and serve right away. Sauces and side dishes were also influenced by what was locally popular or available. And then as the restaurants served these styles of barbecue along with other accompaniments, people started to expect something similar from other restaurants too. And this became a whole thing. As examples, cattle ranching is a huge industry in Texas, as I'm sure you all know, but uh, not so much in a lot of other parts of the United States. So especially in central Texas, beef brisket is a popular barbecue dish. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, where I am from, uh, which at various points in its history has had more pigs than human beings in its population, (laughs) pork barbecue is really the standard Especially in Lexington-style barbecue, which is found in the more western part of the state, slaw is a popular side dish or topping thanks to the presence of cabbage as a crop in the state. That slaw is often made with ketchup instead of mayonnaise. (laughs) Y'all are wrong. It's so good. The very idea. (laughs) Wait, are you a proponent of that? Yes. Mon dieu. I don't... And it's not a thing you can find anywhere besides that. If you go into for a restaurant- For <laughs> Anytime you see a restaurant that says Carolina-style barbecue, it's like that's not exactly a thing because there's two different styles and they're not, one of them doesn't have that. Anyway, uh, where I get kind of like, I have not even tried this, South Carolina's German population uh, often gets the credit for its traditional mustard-based barbecue sauce. I would do that before I would do the ketchup slaw. I gotta tell you. I like German food. Um, So here's where we're gonna do like a quick rundown of all of the most well-known regional barbecues. But honestly, there are a whole lot. Texas has at least four. North Carolina has two. And though South Carolina is best known for that mustard-based sauce we just mentioned, there are other regional barbecues and sauces in that state as well. And that is not even getting into that disagreement (laughs) <laughs> Tracy referenced earlier, uh, whose definitions are right or which way or which city of Brunswick was the one that actually invented the barbecue side dish of Brunswick stew. In my family, we also made it in a way that it was the entree. So uh, uh, yeah, that yeah. Um, so yeah, the, you will not have to listen to us say and it smoked over hickory for 15 times with this. But we do want to do though is note an outlier in all of that, which is, Kansas City barbecue, most there well, there was division in people's response to that. This is why there are fisticuffs at barbecues. Yes. <laughs> uh, so most of the regional barbecue styles stick to meat from one kind of animal, maybe two. They might have several signature preparations of that thing, but it's usually one thing. In Kansas City, though, they barbecue everything. Henry Perry, who was born in in Memphis, is nicknamed the father of Kansas City barbecue. In 1917, he ran a holiday ad encouraging people to call on him for all their barbecued meats. That included possum, groundhog, raccoon, beef, pork, and mutton. Uh, You might not find all of those on a menu today in Kansas City, but in general, you will find way more meat variety than you will in the traditional barbecues of other places restaurants are not the only thing that have had such a huge influence on barbecue for most of the dishes history. It's been all about cooking meat slowly over low or indirect heat. But today when people say they're having a barbecue, they could be talking about, I know cooking on a grill with the flame right under what they're cooking in their own backyard. And that's really a trend that started all the way back in the 1920s when architects and designers started building barbecues in new homes and uh, At first, these were permanent raised brick structures, and then portable grills became a thing not long after that. The heat was a lot more direct than in a traditional barbecue pit that had been around for hundreds of years at that point. Um, But for folks who feel like barbecue should not ever be used as a synonym for grill, that's a usage that goes all the way back to about the 20s. So we're almost at 100 years of people saying that. Charcoal briquettes, incidentally, also go back to the 1920s. Uh, They were patented by Oren F. Stafford of the University of Oregon in 1926. And then Henry Ford realized that he could use the wood waste from his automobile plants to make them. Uh, They were not, however, a commercial success until the 1950s, and that is when Ford's briquette facility was bought and renamed Kingsford, after the man that had sold Ford his timberland in the first place, big Kingsford fan right here. And that is when Kingsford briquettes started to be sold in grocery stores, and this person became very excited about it. (laughs) Uh, At about that same time, home barbecues also got another jolt as post-World War II economic expansion led people, particularly white people, to move into the suburbs. So more people had yards, and more yards had barbecues. The Weber Grill made its debut in 1956. Before that point, home grills did not have lids, so people had to fight with the wind all the time. Uh, commercially bottled barbecue sauces also started taking off in the 40s and 50s as well. Before that, it had been common for people to just make their own. Then the gas grill, which I know a lot of people think is heretical, that made its debut in the 1960s. That low and slow cooked over fire barbecue started to actually struggle a little bit in the 1970s because it takes a lot of hardwood to run a barbecue restaurant and it got harder and harder to come by and more and more expensive. And laws that were meant to protect the environment also made it a lot more challenging to run a business that required the constant burning of wood. Labor costs were also on the rise during this time and fast food restaurants and home grills had made other foods like hamburgers and hot dogs a lot more popular but that more traditional barbecue has really had a resurgence in more recent years thanks to competitions and television shows and just an overall restaurant boom and in some cases a willingness to slow cook meat by other methods than uh, over hardwood smoke which i know a lot of people have strong feelings about uh brooklyn new york even has its own barbecue now which the internet was really, really ready to make fun of when somebody tweeted a picture of a very sad-looking tray of it in March of 2018. If none of you saw this on Twitter, it was literally a tray with what looked like maybe three pieces of biscuit, two rolls, and like a pickle, I think. It's pretty sad. The internet was really ready to make fun of that. Yeah, it was like the sad-faced Hummel figurine of of <laughs> plates. It was not okay. It made you go, "I'm sorry, animal that gave your life to make that." It was not. That was basically the response that the internet had. <laughs> uh, and that is our brief history of barbecue. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for being an amazing yes, crowd. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So So much to everybody who came out for this show. All three of these audiences were just amazing. Yep, I want to tour Texas every time because they were fantastic. (laughs) Uh, We also want to make sure that we thank the staffs at the North Door in Austin, Sons of Herman Hall in Dallas, and Secret Group in Houston, all for having us and being incredibly lovely and sweet and making this just an incredibly fun trip. Yeah, and also thanks so much to Headcount for being with us for part of the tour to register people to vote and to provide other voter information. They are awesome. We've worked with them on all of our tours so far, and we love having them. Yes, they're... uh It makes me so happy every time I see them. Uh, It just thrills me that we get to have them at our shows. Uh, Do you have a little bit of listener mail to wrap this one up? I sure do. This is from Charlotte. Charlotte says Hi, Holly and Tracy. I attended your Houston live show last night, and it was a delight. Thank you so much for coming to Houston and sharing your wonderful selves with us for an evening. Before I lived in Houston, I lived in Chicago, near the south side of the city, and I was wondering if, in your explorations of regional barbecue, you'd come across Chicago barbecue. I think the story of barbecue on the south side is really interesting because it's largely the product of the Great Migration. As African-American families moved north, they brought barbecue with them and adapted it to the new urban environment of Chicago, exchanging outdoor pits for aquarium smoke basically metal and glass tanks where the meat is cooked. Charlotte then gave us a couple links about that. No shade to my current home, but Chicago barbecue is just as delicious as barbecue farther south, and I believe it tells an important story about how food culture adapts to and reflects larger changes in the historical and social environment. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed your time in Texas. Charlotte, thank you so much, Charlotte. This seemed like an incredibly appropriate email to share for the listener mail segment of this episode. Uh, I did find a little bit about Chicago barbecue. We talked about this uh, in the live show during our ad break time and during the Q&As that we do after the show at almost every stop. I originally had plans to talk about all of the major regional styles of barbecue in that episode, and we mentioned it briefly in this one. That turned out to just not be entirely feasible uh, because there are a lot of them And in the context of an audio podcast, the ingredients and such start to sound a little bit repetitive. Uh, So we did not get into that. But if you're interested in that kind of information, there is so much stuff on the web. If you Google regional barbecue styles, you will find lots of different uh, thoughts <laughs> from various folks about uh, which ones are the most delicious and and what their experiences are with them and lots of articles that highlight the various regional styles and how they came to be uh, which they all have very cool stories but not ones that we could uh, and really do justice to in a live show like that. And I also wanted to shout out to the various folks we we've heard from several people who were planning to come to the podcast but were prevented by various circumstances, and we certainly appreciate you all. Also, do not feel badly if you had to miss the show because something happened. Uh, really, uh, you were there in spirit, and now you get to listen to the episode as an episode of the podcast. So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iHeartRadio.com. And then we're also all over social media at Mistin History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you'll find show notes of all the episodes Holly and I have worked on together. And the ones for this include the links to all the things that we read, the books that were part of it, all of that Uh, And you can also get a searchable archive of every episode ever on our website. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get a podcast. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified?